John Patton was a missionary whose life and work is incredibly inspirational. Um, I will commend to you his story. Do a little research. You can find his autobiography. You can find other biographies written of John Patton. John Piper wrote a short autobiography, his life and ministry, and just profound in, in many ways. And I'm going to share just a brief portion of his story with you this morning. Before he was even 12 years old, Patton said this, quote, I had given my soul to God and was resolved to aim at being a missionary of the cross or a minister of the gospel. Through the years of his young adult life and his studies, when he reached the conclusion of his seminary time, he wrote this, I continually heard the wail of the perishing heathen in the South Seas, and I saw that few were caring for them. While I well knew that many would be ready to take up my work here, the Lord kept saying within me, Since none better qualified can be got, rise and offer yourself. Later, when Patton was criticized for leaving a ministry, a local parish ministry that was fruitful, one crucial event sealed his sense of calling. And this was a letter that was written to him by his parents. And I want to say this just as an aside this morning. Parents, when you think about the sort of things that you pray for for your children, your hopes and expectations and dreams, your wishes for them, how many of you are praying, how many of us are praying that God might call them to the mission field, that God might place them in the way of difficulty or even harm, that God might use their lives in a place of persecution or suffering? Or, or even death. How many of us are praying that God would do something more for them than just to make them happy or make them successful at their profession or find a good school? How many were praying like this? And this is what his parents wrote to him. Heretofore we feared to bias you, but now we must tell you why we praise God for the decision for which you've been led. Your father's heart was set upon being a minister, but other claims forced him to give it up. When you were given to them, your father and mother laid you upon the altar, their firstborn, to be consecrated, if God saw fit, as a missionary of the cross. And it's been their constant prayer that you might be prepared, qualified, and led to this very decision. And we pray with all our heart that the Lord may accept your offering, long spare you, and give you many souls from the heathen world for your hire. In response to that letter, this is what Patton wrote in his autobiography. From that moment, every doubt as to my path of duty forever vanished. I saw the God, the hand of God, very visibly, not only preparing me before, but now leading me to the foreign mission field. This sense of calling and responsibility, this resoluteness would mark Patton for the rest of his life, and he never looked back. A place of ministry that Patton would serve for an extended period of time was known then as the New Hebrides. Banuatu is its name today. New Hebrides are a chain of 80 islands spread across 450 miles in the South Pacific. They were first discovered in 1606, but it would be another 230 years before a missionary would ever land there. Two missionaries from London landed in 1839 to begin their ministry work there, but they were killed and eaten by cannibals only minutes after going ashore. Not many years later, 1858, John Patton and his wife set sail to those same islands. But this decision didn't come without criticism, as you might imagine, or concerns, or even warnings. 
In his own words, he wrote, Dreadfully afraid of mistaking my own emotions for the will of God, I left. Most, even including his pastor, were against it. His pastor said, You're throwing your life away among these cannibals. In one, in one classic exchange in his church, he writes, A dear old Christian gentleman repeatedly exhorted me, The cannibals! You'll be eaten by the cannibals! At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. You can read in his biography of so many encounters with terror and, and even near-death experiences again and again where he saw the providential hand of God delivering him again and again. But I want you to consider the result and the reward that Patton writes of. He writes of an occurrence among these new believers, these people for whom the gospel had penetrated their hearts and changed their lives in a place that seems impossible. And he wrote about communion. He says, At the moment I put the bread and wine into those dark hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. And in case you're wondering about his ministry and time served on an island of cannibals, he retired on the island of Australia and died at the ripe old age of 83, having been faithful all the adult days of his life. I pray that God would raise up among us some John Pattons. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I am sadly and confessedly convinced that we seek mostly pleasure from your hand, ease, absence of difficulty or hardship. I fear that we avoid hard conversations with people who need the gospel. I fear we're more concerned about being liked or accepted or simply never tested or tried. I fear that we prefer superficial pleasures that are short-lived rather than the, the treasures of heaven that we're told to seek after. I fear, God, there's much work to be done that will be left undone by many who will regret their lack of faithfulness. Father, I pray that you stir up among us the spirit of mission and evangelism, of care and compassion, of obedience and faithfulness that we see so vividly portrayed in the early church. But Father, we wouldn't simply study the stories of missionaries like John Patton or be enamored of the adventures of the Apostle Paul 
but we would long to, in our day, be useful to you like that. Not comparing scale or scope, but faithfulness. God, that we would do what you want us to do, where you want us to do it, whatever the cost. God, may we be about things that matter, that really matter. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Direct your attention this morning to Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Let me say this just uh, for a moment as I give you a chance to scroll to that in your iPad or find it in your Bible. Um, I, I'm grateful for, and I hope you are, the faithful leadership and sound teaching that Calvary is able to enjoy from its many elders. Um, I think that's to our strength. I think you should feel good about that. That's something you should be excited about. Um, the Thank you, seven amens and a couple of hand claps, that we have people in the church, um, that we're not centered on one person's abilities, whatever they may be, or skill sets or personality, but we have a team of godly men who love the Lord and are gifted to teach and share and want to impart that to you and are able to do so. The church is well led by those men. And you saw last week in Acts chapter 20, the benefit of elders. What do elders do? I was talking with a pastor just this week, and we're going to be having um, lunch next week to talk about elders in his church. And I've got a whole list of things I want to share with him, but the first thing I'll share is this. When you become convinced, because you see it so plainly in Scripture, of what elders are for, what they do, and why they're necessary, you can't unsee it. And Acts chapter 20 is just so vivid that you can't unsee it, that in this local church there were multiple elders, and how those elders guided and cared for and shepherded, and how that became the model that God intended for his church from then on. How we ever... Departed from that, I'm not quite sure. That's a whole other study. But I'm so glad that um, God has been faithful to us here in that sense. So Acts chapter 21, we pick up here in verse 1. When we parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo." You can trace this along, by the way, in one of those maps, if you have them in the back of your Bible, and you can see the conclusion of Paul's third missionary journey taking place. Verse 4, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another, and then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Let me pause there for a moment and just say something. I wish we had a little bit more time to just have sort of a conversation around the table about this text, because there's a lot I'd like to say that's not going to be in your notes, and for time's sake, I won't be able to cover. But I want you to see this as I read through this text and not miss it. I want you to see the absolute necessity of the local church community, the family of faith called the church. Um, it's all just sort of pervasive through what Luke writes and what Luke describes as the church is being formed in all these places. You can't get around this. It's about people coming together who love one another, who care for one another, who are involved in each other's lives. When you see their sense of community, it's all-encompassing. They pray for one another. They care about one another. They gather together, their women and their children. This is real church life. This is what they do. They're engaged with one another. Their lives are knit together. And this is a bit of a bully pulpit for me this morning on this subject. But let me say this. In ways we probably don't even recognize, 
We have been guilty of losing that picture of real biblical community, people who love one another and care for one another because now they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Though they come from so many disparate backgrounds, economically and socially and religiously, culturally, but now they have something that so ties them together that they're family. We, we've missed a lot of that in the modern iteration of church, where church has become for us a service that's provided to us, religious goods, activities, events, things that we can partake of as we see fit or feel we have need of, sort of like passing down a cafeteria line with a tray in hand. I want some of that, some of that, but I'll let go of some of that. Whatever suits me, whatever I need. And when we do find community, I'm afraid we're far too often guilty of finding that community only in small subsets of the church. We find it with a handful of people that maybe we do discipleship with, or that we call our Sunday school class, or our life group, or our small group. But your small group, your life group, your D group, that's not your church. This is your church. It's all these people sitting here, and it's young and old, and it's rich and poor, and it's from so many different backgrounds who have now been made one in Christ, and they love one another, and they care for one another. And that, that's what's underlying what you see in this text. Paul's getting ready to go to a place that's going to challenge him to the very end of his existence. Uh, your life is going to be on the line here. And because they love him and care about him, they don't want to see it in that way. And when Paul tells him, you're not going to see me again, that hurts them to the core because they're, they're family. He's not just the person up there dispensing things to them, wisdom or teaching or guidance or God's truths. They're family. And look for the family themes through the rest of this text. They said farewell to one another. They get on board the ship and they go home. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers, and we stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. You remember Philip the Evangelist? You've probably been wondering what he's been doing all these, all these days. Remember early in the book of Acts, we see Philip, and he meets the Ethiopian eunuch. He shares the gospel with him. Philip was one of the first disciples chosen in the early church in Acts chapter 6. He's now been dispersed, presumably by persecution. What are what he's been doing? Well, he's been having a family. It says he has four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt. He bound his own feet and hands. And he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded... We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. I think about Paul's own statements about his life and ministry. And there's one phrase that I borrowed for the title of this message that I see him repeating a couple of times in his letters. To the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 17, he speaks of his life like this. He says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. It gives us some insight into how Paul saw his life. 
Paul saw his life as a gift from God to be returned to God for his purposes and use, whatever God deemed necessary. And that he would pour it all out. He would save nothing back for himself, but he would give himself completely away in the honor and service of God for the sake of God's people, poured out like a drink offering. The last thing that we know that Paul wrote was his second letter to Timothy. And in it, he tells Timothy this, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. It's the idea that he left nothing behind. No regrets. We saw that last week. We saw Paul's statement of no regrets. I've, I've taught you everything there is to say that I need to tell you that God has told me to tell you. I've held nothing back from you. Your blood will not be on my hands. Nothing held back from God. Nothing that he disobeyed or disregarded in what God led him to do or commanded him to do. But he gave it all. He poured himself out. Robert Shannon a pastor said this about missionaries. He said, never pity missionaries. Envy them. They're where the real action is, where life and death, sin and grace, heaven and hell converge. I wonder if sometimes we look at Paul's story and we look at the sufferings he faced for the sake of the gospel. Shipwreck, snake bitten, nearly stolen to death, beaten in prison multiple times. The opposition he had from his own people and the opposition he had from the world. And the great cost that following Jesus took on his life, we say, man, what a hard life. I wonder if subconsciously, maybe even consciously, we pity him. Man, I want us to envy him. I want us to envy a man who could say at the end, I gave everything I had for the sake of God and the gospel. Because I loved you and cared about you. I pressed on for the mission, for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I did this. I didn't consider my life of any account that I might be faithful, that I might finish this calling. I want you to think of two words this morning when you consider what a poured out life looks like. Two words, two simple words. A poured out life is steadfast. Steadfast. It's not shaky, uncertain. It's not fluid and flexible. It's direct. It's certain. It's, it's immovable. When it comes to his mission calling, he knew that what God wanted him to do was to get to Jerusalem. His hope was to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Remember, we've talked about this just a little bit. We've hinted at, I think, some messages. Maybe it's come through in your small group discussions. That the church is one church going out into many places now. And Paul was sent out by the church at Jerusalem. He was always under that authority of those people in that church and their leaders, those elders. And he hoped to return to them to celebrate with them Pentecost, the forming of the church. We saw in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, this statement, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit. When Paul used the word constrained, it was as if he's implying, I really don't have a choice in the matter. And we know physically speaking, he's got a choice. We know emotionally, mentally, he's got a choice. He could decide to disobey or disregard. He could head off in any direction he pleases. But he says, I'm constrained. I don't really have a choice in the matter. If I'm going to be faithful to my calling, I've got to go to Jerusalem. Poured out life is also sacrificial. I mean, by its very nature, being poured out. He says, I'm being poured out on the offering, as an offering, on the altar of your faith. I'm sacrificing myself for something that I think is worth more than me. 
I'm willing to give my life for something I think valuable enough to give my life for. I'm living for something that I would be willing to die for. So I would say Paul lived a life that very few people ever touch. This is worth everything to me. I would give my life for this. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. That's sacrificial. I'm not about self-preservation. Much, much less just a simple life of pleasure and enjoyment. I, I'm willing to pour myself out. But this faithfulness, this overarching faithfulness, this commitment to the will of God, regardless of cost, is always going to be tested. This is not the path of ease. We should never interpret the way of God or the will of God as the easy way. You know, we have those little phrases we use, those figures of speech. Well, I'm sure God will open a door. Well, if God doesn't want you to do it, I'm sure he'll close the door. Or you can put out a fleece before God. And we think in some ways, consciously or subconsciously, I can't always say, that if it's God's will, he'll make it easy for us. He'll pave the way. He'll provide the way. But the way of God in Paul's life was anything but easy. And it was anything but clear for all those other people, with the exception of Paul, for whom it was abundantly clear I am going. I, I'm constrained to go. But the faithfulness was tested. When they land in Tyre, look at what the church says. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go into Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is revealing something to them of what's going to happen to Paul when he gets to Jerusalem. And so hearing what the Holy Spirit's telling them, which of course is true if the Holy Spirit's telling them that it's got to be true, Hearing what the Holy Spirit's revealing to them, they interpret it wrongly, they apply it wrongly, and they say, therefore, you shouldn't go. It's going to be terrible for you there, so don't go. And again, we understand that they're, they're giving bad counsel for good reasons. I mean, they love him and they care about him. The last thing in the world they want to see is anything happen to Paul. So they say, don't go. And then Agabus. Agabus, who's described as a prophet, Agabus looks much like an Old Testament prophet. He uses this figurative, this, this demonstration that looks sort of like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. And he takes Paul's belt. He bound his own feet and his hands. He says, thus says the Holy Spirit. That's prophet language, Old Testament prophet language even. Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. He couldn't have made it any clearer. Paul, don't you understand what's going to, be, going to happen to you there? You're going to be bound and delivered to the Gentiles with a clear implication. Don't go. This is what's going to happen. You're going to be bound and delivered. And delivered by implication means to death. This is not just difficulty. This is, this is death. When they get to Caesarea... Verse 12, when we heard this, when they heard the prophecy of Agabus, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Who's the we here? Well, this is Luke. This is everybody. The, the church leaders. Luke who was faithful to the Lord. Luke who saw in Paul a picture of what Jesus did. Jesus marching resolutely to Jerusalem. He's painting a picture of Paul marching resolutely to Jerusalem as well, to a climatic ending. And so they all said, don't go. And then Paul's response, 
verse 13. What are you doing? What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. Look how emotional this scene was. He looks at them and he says, guys, what are you doing to me here? Your, your tears. When he says breaking my heart, it probably implies more than just invoking an emotional response from Paul. It probably speaks more to breaking the will of Paul. <laughs> guys, you're making this hard. What are you, what are you doing weeping like this and, and you're, you're affecting my very will? You're breaking my heart. And then he makes this statement. And I don't know if you can find much more of a profound statement of a poured out life. I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm ready for this. And I started wondering, we don't go, we don't obey, we're not faithful, and we don't even know what it may or may not cost us. We're hesitant. And, and we're cowardly, unwilling to take a step or say a word or do something hard or speak something that might be confrontational or unpopular, and we don't even know what the reaction is going to be. Paul knew. You see, they didn't reveal anything to Paul that he didn't already know. It was the Holy Spirit revealed to the church in Tyre the difficulties coming to Paul. As the Holy Spirit revealed to Agabus the imprisonment, the bounding, the handing over that was coming to Paul. In a sense, they weren't telling Paul anything new. Acts chapter 9, verse 13. Remember, this is Ananias, super hesitant to lay hands on Paul, super hesitant to commission him, anoint him, pray for him, anything, to have anything to do with him. He knew who Paul was. He knew the great persecutor of the church, this violent, vengeful man. And I said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. This is if Ananias is saying, God, do you know what you're doing here? I mean, I know this guy, do you? But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's back to Jerusalem. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Can you imagine the beginning of your calling, starting with that? Not the midpoint. Not when things get really ratcheted up, heated up, and difficult. But the very beginning, listen, I'm calling you to something that's going to test you beyond your own abilities. I'm calling you to something that's not always going to seem successful, but is always going to include suffering. I'm calling you to something that's going to exact all of you. You're going to have to be poured out for this. But it's worth it. That's what I'm calling you to. So when they saw Paul's resoluteness, his steadfastness, they all conceded, may God's will be done. May God's will be done. At least in faith, that was their response that God's will would be done. Since he would not be persuaded, they ceased. Steadfast. Sacrificial. That was Paul. Steadfast and sacrificial. Don't pity him. Envy him. Envy a man so convinced of God's purpose for his life, so courageous in his obedience, 
so willing to give up everything that he'll be faithful to the end. To that text, I want to ask you two questions, and I want to offer you three lessons. Two questions and three lessons. And I take these two questions from two men whose writings and preachings have much influenced me, and as I was studying and reading, they just sort of jumped off the pages for me. And so I took them as the questions I want to ask you today. Leonard Ravenhill said this, Are the things I'm living for worth Christ dying for? Are the things I'm living for worth Christ dying for? Is my life and what I'm doing with it and the resources I've been giving, what I'm using them for, is that, is that really what Christ died for me for? We read about his death for us in Romans chapter 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is the life you're living now what he died for you for? Is this it? When he sacrificed his son to deliver you from that body of sin and death, to deliver you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, when you became a child of God, no longer his enemy, but a co-heir with Christ, is this it? Is this all he had in mind for you, what you're doing right now? Is that all he ever intended? Are you satisfied with that? Are you okay to leave it right there? This is what you saved me for. Second question is this, and I take this from a sermon I listened to in several portions several times by John Piper, where he asked this question, is faithfulness better than life to me? Is faithfulness better than life to me? When I'm challenged to be faithful to God and do what he wants me to do, is that more important to me than life? Is it more important to me than quality of life? Is it more important to me than the pleasures of life, the enjoyment of life? In that moment, we're ought to be saying something, doing something, standing for something. Is faithfulness better to me than life? Because that's the sort of life he's talking about here. Every now and then I'll see someone tweet something about persecution or our willingness to die if need be for the sake of Christ. And I ponder that sort of question myself. What would happen if, by God's providence, there should ever come a time where you and I would have to make that choice? Deny Christ and live? Honor Christ and die, and what would we do? But then as I think through it a little bit more carefully, I realize it's somewhat of a preposterous question for most of us. It's a preposterous hypothetical because most of us aren't even doing the far less costly things to live for Him and be faithful to Him now. An unpopular stand against current issues you know, this is right and this is wrong, and it's not political, it's spiritual, it's moral, it's biblical. Will you say something? When you know someone is lost, and without Christ, they have no assurance except death and hell, will you say something? Will you offer them the gospel? When someone is defiant against the truth, when, when someone is, is angry at God, 
when someone is obnoxious in their obstinance, will you warn them with the truth? Those are all things that don't cost us our life. They cost us convenience. They cost us stress or anxiety. They might cost us a little verbal conflict. Will we do those things? Is faithfulness better than life to us? Those are the two questions, and I hope they'll hang with some weight over you. But I also want to give you three lessons this morning from Paul's life and from men sort of like Paul, like John G. Patton. First one is this, I'm convinced that I'll never regret an eternally focused life. That's not the same thing as for me to stand up in front of you this morning and say, I am for sure always consistently living an eternally focused life. So in that sense, I confess it's a bit more theoretical than actual, but it needs to be actual. I don't think you or I will ever regret an eternally focused life, conscious of things that matter in God's economy, conscious of doing things that matter for eternity, conscious of making investments that last versus ones that don't. You're never going to regret an eternally focused life. Number two, I will say this. When it comes to obedience, because that's what's challenged here, Paul already had a clear sense from the Lord that he was to go to Jerusalem. That really wasn't in question, not in Paul's mind. When it comes to obedience, this has to be a settled issue. Our obedience to Christ has to be a settled issue, a priori, before the event, before the challenge comes, before the people come and say, no, no, don't do that. No, you don't really want to do that. No, no, it's too costly to do that. Are you, are you sure? Do you know what's going to happen if you do that? Obedience has to be a settled issue for us. And that's true in every regard. When you search the Scriptures, and by the Word of God and the affirmation of the Spirit of God, you know this is right and this is wrong, then in those moments, obedience always has to be settled. So help me, God, I can do no other. Settled. And the third lesson I'll leave you is this one. The way of Christ is sometimes painful, it's sometimes hard, and it's sometimes lonely. But go anyway. Go the way of Christ anyway. We've got to be super careful when we look at texts like this, how we might wrongly apply them to discerning God's will in our lives. People are certainly helpful. In the counsel of God, we can discern God's will and direction through good friends who love us and care for us. I mean, people who know the word. People who are faithful to Christ. We can look for consensus and wisdom. But there may, become, there may come times and places where you have to simply go with what God's telling you to do alone. And it's lonely. Well-known missionary William Carey said, All my friends are but one but he is all sufficient. It didn't mean that Carrie didn't have friends. It meant there were some times in his life where he knew that the will of God didn't make sense to other people. And that well-meaning people and good people can make wrong decisions and have wrong understanding and wrong interpretations, even of what God tells them. The way of Christ is that way, but will you go that way? Will you go the lonely way, the hard way, the painful way? I hope as you look at the life of Paul, you won't just look at that as 
a hero to be admired. But instead, you look at Paul as a life to be imitated. You know, those were Paul's own words. Paul said, follow me even as I follow Christ. It doesn't mean that you'll go on a missionary journey that encompasses the Greek Isles. It doesn't mean that you go to Rome or to Jerusalem. But all the same principles are there. Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me in hardship and difficulty and faithfulness and obedience to the end without regret. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't address a couple of the themes in the text that you may be saying, but wait, I have a question. I have a, I have a question here. And so I want to do, and I put in your notes something that I kind of remarked to myself, that's a bit comical, a short excursus. I was telling someone before the message, uh, I said I intended to write a short excursus on prophecy to share with you this morning from this text, and then when I looked at my own notes, my short excursus was four pages. Now, I can speak quickly. Don't sigh. I want to hit this just briefly. I, I will say this, for those of you who want to do a little bit more research, uh, you can go online, you can go to our Calvary website, and you can find our Calvary messages. And if you'll scroll back to a message series from the book of 1 Corinthians, um, you'll find a message. There were two parts on this. I gave one part specifically to the theme of biblical prophecy, and you can go back and listen to it and uh, watch it, and you can get a fuller treatment of this. I did that this week. And I'll have to say, as I was watching that, I'm watching and I thought, that guy's got some good stuff to say. <laughs> and I was liking it. I was encouraged. I was inspired. And then I got to a certain part and I go, hmm, that's a little strong. Um, that, that's a little overconfident. And so I say that to say in those four years since November of 2018 when I gave that message, that I'm increasingly convinced on this subject that we have to be careful. And this is one of those one of those biblical doctrines that we would be wise as Christians um, to look deeply, consistently throughout Scripture, but also hold some of our conclusions with a bit of an open hand. And, and I want to talk about this just for a moment, answer a couple of questions. First, I want to talk about Agabus for a second. And I mentioned him already. Agabus is obviously functioning in the role of a biblical prophet. Uh, the imagery here very much evokes Old Testament prophets, whether you're talking about Isaiah, who walked about naked in Jerusalem as indicative of the judgment that's coming when they're stripped bare, or whether you're talking about Jeremiah and his linen undergarment that we see in Jeremiah chapter 13, which he talks about as a symbol of how Israel and Judah has to cling to God in difficulty, or you talk about Ezekiel. Ezekiel even built little models of miniature siege works against Jerusalem to show them this is what's coming. And you know, when he put on Paul's belt and he strapped himself to it, he's evoking Old Testament prophecy, that imagery of a prophet, both Old or New Testament. And he speaks with authority. Agabus says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. That was always the mark of a prophet in the Old Testament as well. Thus saith the Lord. There's Agabus. And you may read this in some interpretations of Agabus, that Agabus indicates something new about New Testament prophets versus old, that you can give a prophecy and it be only partially accurate. They'll say, well, Agabus gave the prophecy, but he wasn't exactly right. Because when you get to later chapters in, in Acts, you see what happens with Paul is that um, actually it seems to be a little bit in reverse uh, of what's taken place there. Um, before I get to that, remember in Acts eleven twenty eight, 28, Agabus has already given one prophecy that was accurate. It was about a famine. 
And I think this prophecy ultimately is accurate too. Um, when you get again to Acts 28, here's what Paul said. Paul says, brothers, although I've done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Paul's terminology, in fact, the exact same word, is the same word that Agabus uses. I think what Agabus is giving a prophecy of is the sense of the thing, the sense of the idea that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles, which he was, and I think Paul affirms it. So the argument that Agabus gave a prophecy that wasn't exactly right is not, not true either. And I think when you look at those prophets or those, those Holy Spirit words that were given to the church in Tyre, remember they said, um, what were their, what's their exact wording? Let me reread it. When they spoke of, of why they warned Paul, they said, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go into Jerusalem. Again, I think what you see happening there is they were rightly told by the Spirit what was coming. They just wrongly applied it. Since this difficulty is coming and the hardship and the persecution and the arrest is coming, don't go. They had the right word. They had the wrong application of it in the text. And I think that's what's happening here. Something else I want you to consider when it comes to prophecy in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul himself emphatically laid out these fundamental statements. And let me read them to you again. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and following. He said, you're no longer strangers and aliens. So who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. You, I'm defining you. You're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of the household of God. That's a definition of the church. Now, what does he say the church is built on? Verse 20 of, that, of Ephesians 2. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Next chapter in chapter 3 verse 5, speaking of the mystery of the gospel, he says this mystery was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now why am I telling you that? When Paul writes to the churches later, and we see the churches being formed in places and structures being put in place. And you see deacons and elders in those places. So when he's writing in 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, he never mentions prophets again. He never mentions apostles again. He simply talks about elders and deacons, or elders or presbyters or bishops, interchangeable words, and deacons. That's all he ever mentions. Now, why is that? Because I believe that fundamentally, when he's talking about the foundation of the church, what God intends is it's built on the foundation of the revelation given to the apostles and to the prophets and the founding era of the church. That's the foundation. It's built on Christ, and the church grows up from that. And that teaching from that now is handed over to the elders based on those prophets and those apostles. So there's no prophet today. When someone says, I'm a prophet, I reject that outright. When someone says, I'm an apostle, I reject that out, outright. Um, there are apostolic ideas and concepts, but there are no apostles today. Church planters are not apostles. Those who lead church planting movements are not apostles. Those who preach and those who preach with very specific implications or applications are not prophets. These are something different. But what about prophecy as a gift? Not as an office, but as a gift in the church. This is where I would say a maybe. This is where I would say a maybe. In one sense, we know that there are prophecies, both in Old Testament and New Testament eras, that were not all written down. Um, the four daughters, for instance. We're simply told that Philip had four daughters who prophesied. We aren't told that he had four daughters who thought they were prophets or who were false prophets. 
We're just simply told they prophesied. We don't know what they prophesied. We're not given that information. It's not primary to the text, or I would have made that the primary point of the text. The primary point of the text is Paul's calling, Paul's obedience, Paul's faithfulness. They're just simply mentioned as a, as a note, a sidebar. They were prophets. We know similarly in the Old Testament there were prophecies that were given, and they're not all written down. So every prophecy is not equivalent to, to Scripture. And again, what they all heard and said was true. Those who were told by the Spirit of what was going to happen to Paul, Agabus, again, we know nothing of the four daughters. We know this, these sort of prophecies are not a replacement for Scripture. They're not an improvement on Scripture. They're not an addition to Scripture. They're always subject to Scripture and interpretation. Prophecy is not the same thing as preaching because we know that prophecy was allowed for women to do in the church. It was not allowed for them to be preachers or to be elders in the church. And we know that simply what's happening with those four daughters looks much just like what we see in the book of Jude in the last days. That God would pour out His Spirit and men and women would prophesy. Um, I want to read you a quote that I affirm. I believe this. We need to be eager to hear from God through His Word. And if God so chooses to bring something from that Word to bear on our lives specifically and spontaneously, we should be ready to receive it and act on it. That's my quote. And it is my quote, November 4th, 2018. We need to be eager to hear from God in His Word. That needs to be primary. That role of prophecy as it exists in the church, whether we would call that inferences that God would give, insights that God might provide for us. They're meant to direct, to inform, to strengthen, to encourage, or comfort, all subject to the teaching of the Word in the church. But we need to be eager to hear from God His Word first. And so what did these prophets bring? They brought some additional information that they gave specific direction, some word of warning, some word of encouragement, some word of comfort. I say all this to say, I think when it comes to how those things are played out in the church today, that we need to be somewhat open-handed on this. You know, I, I didn't give you a full discourse on this, nor did I intend to this morning for time's sake. But I think we need to be rather open-handed with this, only because I see so much diversity in the church um, over this subject. And I think we also have to be cautious in our practice. It's very easy to substitute spontaneous words and revelations. It's easy for us to mistake those as things from God. I think we also have to be very biblical in our discernment. And when it comes to a situation like this, it's clear that we're not dependent upon what people say in our decision-making. Were they hearing from God that there was going to be difficulty? Yes. Was there application of that right? No. No, it wasn't. And I think that you and I need to be willing to accept the work of the Holy Spirit among us. We need to be willing to accept the work of the Holy Spirit among us, encouraging one another, challenging one another, speaking to one another. Is that the same thing as the infallible word? No. Is that the same thing as the foundation of the church? No. Is that consistent with God loving us and caring for us and urging us to love and care for one another? I think that it is. When it comes to your decision-making, when it comes to your decision-making, what has God's word told us? What is God's spirit affirming in you? What commitment have you made and will you keep it? What does faithfulness in Christ require of us? I think those are the challenges of the text, and I hope we'll act on them. I want to ask you if you'll pray with me this morning. Father God, I thank you that we have a, 
reliable revelation of you. That we're not a people or a church built on a flimsy foundation. Ours is a two-millennia foundation with Christ as a cornerstone built on the apostles and the words you gave them and the prophets which affirmed those words and applied those words to us. Father, we thank you for that. But Father, I also thank you for your power at work among us, mighty to save, able to convict and challenge I thank you for the role and responsibility we have in the lives of one another to encourage, to teach, to correct, to edify, to build up. And Father, I pray we would be about that. Father, as I think about this text this morning and the example set forth, Father, I fall woefully short, woefully short of that. Oh God, that you would get us all to that point where we know we're living lives that are worthy of Christ. And that's what your word says, that we should walk worthy of Jesus. We should walk worthy of you. Not trying to earn our way to you, not struggling and striving that you might accept us one day. But recognizing the great love with which you've loved us, the great gift of grace with which you have blessed us, the high calling of God we have in Christ Jesus. I'm walking worthy of that. God, I want to be worthy of that. So God, make our lives matter. I know that won't happen without faithfulness, obedience. And Lord, I pray that faithfulness would matter more to us than anything. Father, that we would be eternally minded, without regret. Father, that we would be focused on your kingdom, that we'd be resolute in our obedience. And willing to, if need be, suffer for your sake or for the gospel. Forgive us for falling short of that. God, we thank you that you're ever merciful, ever good, always loving. And now, Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, show us how we might do your word. Not just think about it or consider it, but how we might live it, how we might do it. What would you have us do, Father? Father, for somebody in this room today or someone with an earshot of this message as it goes out after today that doesn't have Jesus as Savior and King, Father, I pray that you change their hearts. Lord, I pray you'd affect their will and emotions. I pray you'd cause them to see and think and understand in ways they never have. Father, they would put their faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone and give their lives to you exchange all of their sin and all the despair and all the hopelessness that comes from a life apart from you in exchange for forgiveness and grace and mercy and love and peace and joy and hope. And Lord, that you be much glorified. And Lord, now call out from among us those who would serve you. Call out from among us those that you would send. Call out from among us real missionaries for around the corner or around the world, whatever it may be. Lord, for such a time as this, use us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.